0: The challenge of climate change may threaten America's national security. This is Brief Before Impact. And welcome everyone, I am Matt Parker. Uh, If I'm being honest, you know, when I hear the talking heads on the TV just debate climate change, you know, if it's real or not, or how humans are poisoning the planet, I, I honestly start tuning out. At, at this point, if someone challenges the causes of climate change and says perhaps that it's not humanity's fault, the person's quickly labeled just as a science denier. You know, It becomes like a moral argument. Now, right out of the gate here, I'll give you my thoughts on what climate change is and how it will be fixed, and then we can really dig into the, the purpose of today's episode. So, first, do I think... Humans can affect the climate. The short answer is, yeah, it seems certainly possible to me. You know, I'm not a scientist. I don't live and breathe this subject by any means. But I've always thought kind of about this, the car tailpipe, you know, whenever pondering on man-made climate change. Think about this. You ever had your face near a vehicle, just its near its tailpipe when it's running? It doesn't take you long before you, like, retract backwards and you just take a breath of fresh air. Now multiply that sensation just by... Millions of vehicles around the world and to me it seems within the realm of possibility that mankind could affect our planet with the production of fossil fuels. And if that's the case, well, the second question is, well, how will climate change be solved? Now, my opinion is that there's going to be some super brilliant engineer kind of person. It's going to create that one product or that one tool and it's going to be able to revolutionize energy production and energy storage. Uh, the integer the engineer is going to use some capital from investors they're going to create this awesome company and make an absolute fortune selling their product that's how honestly how i think it's going to be solved so since this episode is not a debate on what causes the climate to change but rather an observation of what security challenges arise from the effects of climate change you know for example you know what causes a drought in rural African country, you know, it, it, it's not the issue that we're going to discuss, but rather, what does that drought cause besides no rain, besides poor crop yield? You know, what do the farmers, dependent on those crops, do to ensure that they can pay the bills? What happens to unemployed youth with no communal institutions and their parents kick them out because they can't afford them to live with them anymore? You know, where does that person seek refuge and answers? How do extremist organizations? fill a void in this scenario? So all those kind of questions and many others, we're going to get teased out You know, during this episode where we will find that there are some common threads between them. And more importantly, I think as Americans, if we can just foresee potential security issues that climate change is going to cause and is causing, then perhaps we can protect our interests as Americans, both domestically and abroad, just with effective policy. Before we get into it, stick with me for a quick ad break, and then we're gonna to get to work. All right, welcome back, everyone. So let's just start today by working through some of the potential security issues as a result of climate change. All right, this is according to NRCM. Uh, U.S. and military and intelligence officials have repeatedly identified climate change as a security risk. Now, during 2014, the Department of Defense's Quadrennial Defense Review. Uh, describes the effects of climate change as, quote, threat multipliers that will aggravate stressors abroad, such as poverty, environmental degradation, political instability, and social tensions, conditions that can enable terrorist activity and other forms of violence. And Congress has also identified these risks. Affirming in the fiscal year 2018 Defense Authorization Act that climate change is, quote, a direct threat to the national security of the United States. You know, Just a few years ago, 2016, the then director of national intelligence, James Clapper, he called for a climate change, a driver of unpredictable instability, impacting the availability of basics like food and water and other resources, which are increasingly to become matters of conflict and already are between and among countries. So that kind of lays out the framework. Let's highlight a couple of key examples of uh, security conflicts to the America's national military, starting with uh, threats to military bases and readiness. For example, you might not know, a lot of American military bases are located in kind of coastal regions, very close to the water, obviously Navy and Coast Guard. The issue being here is if we see rising waters and kind of a degradation of the um, the soil at the beaches and so forth, those military units might not have the appropriate readiness for like a deployment because their um, naval base or military base is in constant shifting. Engineers are, are having to deal with the fact that the um, base needs to be moved back and so forth. So our units are not able, perhaps, not able to adequately train or prepare for an overseas deployment. A second example would just be the increased burden on the Department of Defense. Um, for example, after natural disasters, so often um, military units deploy uh, or are mobilized in order to respond to such of a, an event. You might not know, for example, after Hurricane Sandy, the Pentagon mobilized about 24,000 um, military personnel just to help out with emergency response. Uh, third example, you know, look at water stress and conflict over resources. Take, take a massive drought affecting a rural population in Africa. Uh, now that the crops aren't yielding nearly what they used to, the riverbeds, the lakes, the main sources of water for drinking, cooking, et cetera, are all drying up. Now there's still plenty of people, but fewer resources easily could lead to uh, a type of conflict between local groups. In overall, when you consider climate change and conflict, you know climate change doesn't directly cause conflict. What it could be seen as is almost an accelerant, kind of like gas to the the engine, so to speak, an accelerant of instability. And our troops already operate in fairly unstable countries around the world currently, and that climate change could only exacerbate those issues. And the last security uh, conflict I wanted to kind of highlight was just the new challenges to the arctic as the ice continues to melt there the arctic region is particularly vulnerable to change since it is warming twice as fast as anywhere else in the world the rapidly melting sea ice it's creating these access for new trade routes and previously inaccessible resources now that could potential or potentially alter the current geopolitical relationships. Now, for example, the five Arctic nations, United States, Canada, Denmark, Norway, and Russia, they're all going to have to navigate this challenge of increased Arctic access and potential competition for those natural resources. Inevitably, when you have uh, military powers, naval powers especially, operating in very close proximity, issues can come up. We've seen this in the South China Sea with accidental hits, uh, like coll- collisions between both um U.S. and/or China ships or other ships, for example, we've seen this between Iranian Navy and American Navy and the Persian Gulf. So this is certainly a real issue. The last comment I did want to change and move into was just how climate change and terrorism are actually linked. Now you've heard me talk about in previous episodes, uh, kind of what terrorism could potentially look like in the future moving forward. Now. Admiral Joseph Lopez, who's a retired commander chief, U.S. naval forces in Europe, as well as allied forces in southern Europe, he highlights and articulates how climate change could be an underlying catalyst to terrorism spreading. And he writes, climate change will provide the conditions that will extend the war on terror. You have very real changes in natural systems that are most likely to happen in regions of the world that are already fertile fertile ground for extremism. Droughts, violent weather, ruined agricultural lands, those are the kinds of stresses we'll see more under climate change. So, those changes in nature will lead to changes in society. So, more poverty, more forced migrations, higher unemployment, all those conditions are ripe for extremists and terrorists. So, when we assess just the security current concerns caused by climate change, in my view, our government would be able to quickly shift national security priorities and military deployments to adjust to the realities on the ground. What might be more difficult is the forecasting the geopolitical outcomes of countries who depend substantially on fossil fuels for their country's GDP. Now, these countries, which are also known as petrostates, uh, include several nations in the Middle East, which is a region known for instability. So where would these countries end up? As the transition into renewable energies in that resource continues, now, according to Jason Bordoff for Foreign Policy, transforming an industry that has defined the modern era will have profound consequences on the global order. You know, China will rise and petrostates will fail, or so says conventional wisdom. In reality, the geopolitical fallout of clean energy transition will be far more subtle, complex, and actually counterintuitive. first take China. Now, the economist predicts powerful electrostates to take place of today's petrostates, with China benefiting the most by dominating rapidly growing markets for clean energy products. Yet even China dominates the production of solar panels, electric car batteries, and other technologies. It will not derive the same measure of geopolitical influence that Saudi Arabia or other Middle Eastern countries have by dominating oil supply the geopolitical leverage of the two is very different. You know, China might have power over a new market for clean energy equipment by producing it the most cheaply, but if China curbs solar panel exports for geopolitical reasons, the lights would not go out. Restricting battery shipments may lead to higher prices and delays for new electric cars, but would have no impact on the people's ability to get around in their vehicles today. And That stands in sharp contrast. To a, a sudden cutoff of oil or cutoff of natural gas that could stymie mobility, trigger price spikes, or lead people to people freezing in their homes. You know, if if you look at, for example, Russia stopped gas deliveries to some southeastern European countries in the depth of the winter in two thousand six and then again in two thousand nine. You know, many of today's predictions are likely to turn out wrong or will take decades to unfold in unpredictable ways. Or you take the Middle East, where the, the narrative of collapse and chaos in a post-oil world has taken over the pundits' imaginations. States that became powerful with their vast production of fossil fuels will fail to diversify their economies in time, lose U.S. protection, and descend into conflict, or at least so the prediction goes. More likely, however, is that during the many decades needed to achieve the climate goals of the Paris Agreement, Petrostates will could enjoy a veritable feast before the famine. Now, to f- defy the conventional wisdom further, consider that some of today's petrostates may be tomorrow's electrostates. You know, electrostates will not only be manufacturing powerhouses like China, but also those who produce cheap, zero-carbon energy for export, either as le- electricity to neighboring countries or in the form of fuels such as hydrogen and ammonia, which can be used to power factories, buildings, and transportation. Saudi Arabia, for example, has abundant, low-cost solar power, just announced a $5 billion project to turn renewable energy into hydrogen, and has also sent Japan the world's first blue ammonia shipment. Other rich nations in cheap renewable power, such as Chile, or, excuse me, other nations rich in cheap renewable power, such as Chile, may also emerge as the superpowers of a new hydrogen-based economy. And finally, take Russia, you know, another powerful petro-state, widely expected to be a loser of the energy transition. In reality, its leverage as the leading supplier of natural gas to Europe, an increasingly important supplier of gas to China, and a rapidly rising global exporter of liquefied natural gas could rise during this transition period. According to the IEA's scenario consistent with climate goals, natural gas demand in Asia-Pacific region will rise over the next two decades. In Europe, it will fall, but since Russia is the lowest cost supplier to Europe, or, yes, uh, its share of the European gas market would likely rise for the same reason, that OPEC's share of the oil market will likely rise. In addition, advances in carbon capture technology could create opportunities for natural gas to play a role in the low-carbon economy, either directly or converted to other fuels, such as hydrogen. As for Russia's substantial oil revenues, higher prices from persistent global underinvestment would benefit Russia as well. And Clearly, the effects... Of transitioning into renewable energy sources. They're not going to be overnight, nor with geopolitical pain. As an observer, and certainly not an expert in energy production, it seems like a fair ask for our country to ensure we have diversified sources of energy in order to not be dependent on one supplier or one supply chain just to keep the lights on. You know, not all of our eggs in one basket, so to speak. And that brings me to addressing the one energy source that is rarely mentioned for, or by the strongest advocates of renewable energy. And I'm talking about nuclear energy. You know, why does this clean energy source not get the attention like renewable energy sources do? According to Nuclear Matters, our nation's energy security, economy, and environment all suffer when energy markets fail to value the basic attributes of nuclear energy. Consider the following, clean energy with virtually no air emissions, continuous baseload generation that supports electrical grid reliability, fuel and technology diversity, thousands of well-paying long-term jobs, and a myriad of contributions just to local and regional economies. But artificial market forces and political pressure are forcing the closure of high-performing nuclear plants that should continue running for decades. The new arbitrary structure of wholesale electricity markets results in the artificially low electricity capacity and capacity prices. Cheap and constant electricity provided by a nuclear is kept devalued in this present market. You know, so why isn't preserving nuclear power at the top of everyone's list? Because nuclear energy has no constituency. There's no West Virginia like there is for coal, no Texas like there is for oil, no Pennsylvania like there is for natural gas, no national environmental movement like there is for wind and solar. Nuclear has always been a national asset, and now it's suffering from the hostile regional forces and a fractured nation. Honestly, though, it would be unfair to not point out the criticisms of nuclear energy. According to The Spectator, the use of nuclear energy for electricity generation, it's a political minefield at every level. Beyond just technological problems, it is politics that is the biggest obstacle to the more widespread adoption of nuclear energy. At the national level, the main problems are related to the enormous cost of building nuclear plants. The cost of building a nuclear power plant are enormous, and governments must become involved to realize that construction. And that can be done in... Various ways, but at the end of the day, substantive investment from the public coffer is required. And that requires a broader societal agreement that such an investment is worth the while. Before we get into our course of actions and we close out for the day, I just want to play you a short clip from Ian Brimmer, the founder of the Eurasia Group. It's a political risk consultancy. Bremmer is articulating the challenge of global action towards climate change and why this situation
1: will get worse before it gets better. Take a quick listen. If you will. Right? It, it is very hard to harness collective action. And yet, the science is very clear. Right. In other words, 30, 40 years ago, you go and talk to climatologists, there was not a lot of uncertainty that climate change was happening. There were, there were yeah. uncertainty on details, on speed, but everyone recognized that if we don't address this, a lot of people are going to die. Like it's going to be a very suboptimal outcome for the world. And yet, because of the collective action problem that you just talked about, yeah. here we are. Here we are. And and look at insurance companies, and look at Bangladesh, and look yeah. at the Maldives, and all of these things that were utterly predictable. You didn't need a crystal ball. We are now experiencing that geopolitically. The major problem is that geopolitics. We're not talking about thirty years like climate change, more like thirty months, right? Like this isn't going to last thirty years. Right. Wheels right. are going to come off before then. And it is really obvious that we've got a collective action problem. We can't respond to it effectively. We won't respond to it effectively. So it's going to get worse before we start to really address the issue.
0: So I think Bremer articulates that challenge very well, which moves us right to our most likeliest, most dangerous courses of action. In my assessment for the United States, the most likeliest course of action it will take Regarding the climate change issue to national security, is that the national security consequences of climate change should be fully integrated and will be fully integrated into a national security and national defense strategy. The U.S. will commit to global partnerships that help less developed nations build the capacity and resiliency to better manage climate impacts. We've certainly seen this ball be swapped back and forth between both Republican and Democratic. Um, White Houses, but overall as a country we have filled these gaps both on incorporating climate change into our national defense strategies as well as uh, partnering with less wealthy countries around the world to uh, build that capacity and resiliency to climate impacts. And For our most dangerous course of action, in my assessment the most dangerous thing the United States could do with fighting climate change and its issues on national security, would be to commit to an international agreement in which other actors are not held to account and their actions against the climate change issue. Now, we've seen the challenges with the Paris Agreement, certainly, and I th- it would be concerning if the United States amplified its effort in these types of agreements with no true um, accountability mechanism. And also very dangerous if the United States transformed America's energy infrastructure by tyrannical regulations just compared to free market forces creating innovative services just disregarding obvious energy solutions like nuclear in favor of solely just less just less dependable renewable energy sources. again, to wrap this up for this evening, I'm not advocating, for only one path forward when it comes to mitigating the challenges of climate change and ensuring America's national security, or even that transition into uh, other renewable energy sources. However, I think the best path forward would be a a balanced and prudent approach uh, managing uh, expectations of both those who are strongest advocating renewable energy sources and those who don't want to touch it at all. I feel like the arguments and the discussion about climate change tends to be in two camps. Uh, one is over blowing the issue and the other one is completely denying it kind of is happening. I honestly find the truth to be kind of probably right there in the middle. So I believe that for America's effective policy to be put into place, to ensure that our national security is um, dealing with this issue and overall incorporating climate change into our national strategies, um, not overcommitting committing to some international agreement where other actors are not held to account and certainly making that transition in more diversified energy um, sources for the United States is going to be a, certainly a priority for us moving forward. Thanks for tuning in today. Uh, you can always reach out to me on Instagram at brief before impact. I always appreciate y'all listening in to every week and all these episodes I put together. Certainly enjoy it. And as always, I hope you're picking up what I'm putting down. I am Matt Parker. This is Brief Before Impact.